All right, take your Bible, please, and turn to Acts chapter 17. If you have access to the Bible on your phone or your tablet and you want to pull that out, we're going to be in Acts chapter 17. Acts is the fifth book in the New Testament. You get past those four Gospels there at the beginning that tell the story of Jesus' life and ministry, and then Acts which is actually written by one of the gospel writers named Luke, the book of Acts begins to pick up the story of how the church expands and grows in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we've jumped into Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 16, which is the story that puts Paul in the city of Athens, trying to think about the question, what has Athens to do with America? Uh, There's a famous quote from a writer named Tertullian, where he asks, what has Athens to do with Jerusalem? We're looking at this passage in Acts chapter 17, trying to say, how do we understand from Paul's engagement there in Athens what it means to live faithfully as a Christian in the 21st century? Not perfect parallels, but the parallels as they stand are pretty astounding. And so we're in the second week of a four-part series looking at Paul in Athens. We're going to start reading this morning In verse 16, and we're going to read this whole section together uh, this morning. Some of this is from last week, so I, yeah, they're on the screen. We're good to go. Thanks, guys. Verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. Some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Verse 19, they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So in verse 22, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Then in verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. 
And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So in verse 32, when they had heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this story from Scripture. Father, I pray this morning as we think about what it is for you to be creator, what it is for Paul to have stood before this group of people and proclaimed to them the God they did not know. God, guard our hearts specifically this morning against feeling like, I already know that, I've been down that, I know God created all things, and then pushing it to the side. God, let us hear clearly from your word again about what it means that you're creator and what it means for us to respond to you in worship. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all this? He who brings out the stars one by one and calls them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. So why do you complain, O Jacob? Why do you say, O Israel, my way is disregarded by my God? He does not pay attention to my cause. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. He's the creator of the ends of the earth. His power is greater than anything. His understanding, who can fathom? He gives strength to the weary, and he increases the power of the weak. Even youth grow tired and weary, unless they're toddlers, and then they don't grow tired and weary. But Even youth grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will rise up on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Isaiah chapter 40, 25 to 31. This past week, I was introduced to a new word. Uh, the new word that I learned this last week was astrophotography. Uh, I was reading an article about a man named Richard Hammer. Richard Hammer is an accountant and a CPA by, uh, by day, and by night, he uses high-tech telescopes and uh, high-tech cameras attached to these telescopes to take incredible pictures of the night sky of stars and galaxies. You can see his work at www.seetheglory.com. I've got a couple of pictures on the screen, and it's does not even come close to doing justice. If you can see the screen, even if you could see the screen, it still doesn't do justice. This first picture is a pinwheel galaxy that Richard Hammer took a picture of in, within the constellation Ursa Major. It's an incredible pinwheel, classic-shaped galaxy. He took a picture of that using his telescope. Uh, you go to his website and you start to see other things. There's a no, the next picture are the Pleiades, these uh, famous seven sisters stars. This picture was taken over the period of 10 hours of this constellation. The interesting thing about the Pleiades is that they're actually mentioned in the book of Job, in the book of Amos, in, in the Old Testament. But the story behind these pictures is that Richard Hammer, when he went to college, was an agnostic. 
which is another way of saying that he was just uncertain about the existence or the idea of God, about God having a role in the world. He was an agnostic, which is a common word we still use uh, even today. But after some time in college, he became what he described as a full-bore atheist. No concept of God, no desire for anything to do with God. He was just a complete atheist. When he was a junior in college, though, he had a radical conversion to Christianity, not just believing that a God exists, but believing that he was in rebellion against that God, and that the only way he could be made right with his maker, the only way that he could meet his maker is because of the goodness and the grace shown through Jesus Christ, that he died for his sins. And so Richard Hamer had this incredible conversion experience in college, but that conversion experience to Christianity didn't take away his love for science, didn't take away his love for astronomy. As he tells the story, it actually increased his love for science, increased his love for astronomy, because now, as he took these pictures, now, as he looked into the heavens, he saw the mark of the Creator. He writes on one of his uh, blog articles that the order, immensity, and design of the universe continually point me to the Creator. Last week, as we looked at the beginning of the story in Acts 17 of what it was for Paul to come into the city of Athens, he comes into Athens and it's a place full of idols. It's a place full of all kinds of religious ideas and religious interests. It's people seeking after something. And Paul notices that it's a city, though, that has one particular idol, one particular altar that stands out to him because it says to the unknown God. And so Paul takes that opportunity and he's going to preach to them. He's going to speak to them about who this God is. Now, as you go through the book of Acts, there's something that develops as you go through this book is that you'll have a story and then you'll have an extended speech. When you read the book of Acts, you have to pay particular attention to those speeches because Luke puts them in there as a way to help us understand how the storyline is developing. So when people in the book of Acts will, will break into a long speech, it's not just a random speech that Luke has put in there. He puts those speeches in there to help us understand how the story is unfolding. And what's important about Acts chapter 17 and Paul's sermon that he gives on Mars Hill is that it's a speech that's one of only two that we have that Paul gave to an entirely Gentile audience. So what it does is it lets us know what it would have meant for Paul to preach to an audience that didn't have the Old Testament scriptures in their background, that didn't grow up in Sunday school, so to speak. Here's why that's important. Because we, every day, are moving further and further into living in a country living in a state, living in a city where people didn't grow up with the Sunday school stories, don't have Bible knowledge in their background. There was for a while that we could presuppose, you know what, there's a good chance people knew the Bible stories, there's a good chance they grew up going to church, but more and more we're moving into a world where that's not necessarily the case. You may be here this morning and your experience with church started much later in life. You didn't grow up going to Sunday school or vacation Bible school. And so scripture with these stories like Paul gives on Mars Hill gives us a picture of what it was for him to proclaim Jesus in that type of situation. The speech that he gives here on Mars Hill is so fascinating because it really revolves around three topics. It revolves around the creation, the judgment of sin, and the resurrection of Jesus. So creation, judgment, 
resurrection are the three core ideas. And what we're going to do over the next three days is we're going to break the speech down into those three parts, creation, judgment, resurrection. But here's what I really love about that. Those three components match up with this three circles model that we've been learning as a church. So we introduced this last week, and you need to see the big picture in order to see what's going on there. But on the front of your bulletin, if you received a bulletin as you came in, there's a picture, and that same picture is up on the screen. But this three circles model that I first learned from a pastor uh, named Jimmy Scroggins down in Florida, and I don't know if he developed it or he just picked it up and just passed it on, but it's a model that begins in the top left with the idea of God's design, that God is the creator, that God is the giver of life, the shaper of life. He is the one who has created all things so that we would live for him. Sin is the arrow pointing out to the right. Sin is rebellion against God. It's moving away from God's design for our lives and God's design for the world. Sin always leads to brokenness. Not just brokenness, but death for the wages of sin or death. When we move away from God's design, it leads to brokenness and death. The squiggly lines out to the side are all of our attempts as humans to deal with the brokenness in the world. People try to escape their brokenness in a hundred different ways, but every one of those just leads us further from God's design. The only way to get back to God's design is when we repent and we believe in the gospel. And gospel is just a hundred dollar word that means good news. It's the good news that Jesus died to defeat sin and to defeat death. And when we experience that work of Jesus in our life, then we begin to live seeking after God's design. So it's God's design, creation. It's the brokenness that comes from sin, which is the judgment that Paul talks about in Acts 17 that we're going to talk about next week. And then it's the resurrection the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ that he not only died for us, but he rose again. And because of that, we're able to live the life that God created us to live. It's amazing the way that Acts 17, Paul's speech in Mars Hill, matches this model. Now this model is not scripture. It's man-made. I understand that. It's always better to point people back directly to the Word of God. But what this gives you is a way to sit down with a friend or a coworker or a fellow classmate and say, let me show you what it means to know the God of the Bible. Essentially, you're telling the story of the Bible as you walk someone through this. Three parts, creation, judgment, resurrection. This morning, we're going to talk about creation. How does the doctrine of creation impact what it means to live as God's people? On the back of your bulletin, if you flip it over, there's a couple of notes you're welcome to use uh, as we follow along. All right, let's jump into verse 23. Verse 23, as Paul begins this sermon, he says, for as I passed along, Acts chapter 17, verse 23, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. With that word unknown there, Paul is playing on the concept of ignorance. The word unknown in this verse, if you looked at the Greek word behind it and you just read it out with English letters, it's the word agnostic. Remember earlier, we talked about that guy who did the astrophotography, that when he started college, he was agnostic. He didn't know about God. He wasn't sure what he knew about God or whether or not he believed. 
It's just that same Greek word as the word here for the word unknown. That the idea that they do not know about God. Now, the reason that's such a big deal is remember that the city of Athens is a place of great learning. This is the place of Plato and Socrates and Aristotle. This is the place of culture and architecture. This is a place where ignorance was the main cardinal sin. If you were ignorant, if you did not know something, that was considered a very bad thing. We live in a world where there is an incredible access to knowledge. It seems impossible in 2016 that you would not be able to know something. The reason I know that this is true is because I've developed an unhealthy confidence based on YouTube videos. Um, so I'm naturally not particularly good at fixing things. Uh, my dad and both of my brothers got all of those abilities and I, to use the old joke, can barely fix a glass of water. That was before I discovered YouTube videos. And if you have a problem at your house, all you do is you just type in the problem, the model number, and there's an expert to tell you. The problem is, is it can create this very unhealthy overconfidence in your ability to fix things. Uh, so this is kind of like the male counterpart, part, so to speak, to Pinterest fails, uh, where you think, oh, I could do that, and then you realize, oh, I can't do that. I actually don't have the ability to do that. But I would like you to know that over the last couple of months, I've fixed a refrigerator and a dishwasher based on YouTube videos. Like, you can access this information and know this. But Paul comes into Athens and he sees that they've come to a point that they admit that they don't know something. That there might be another God out there that would be added to the gods already in their city, all the idols and altars that they already have. And so just in case they left out another God, they have this altar to the unknown God. But Paul is going to come along and say that inclination to worship, that need to seek after to make sure that you're worshiping the right thing, that's a good thing. It's an inclination to worship, but Paul's going to do even more than that. At the end of this verse, notice what he says. He says, this God, the one that you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Here at Emmaus, there's one, well, hopefully we're learning a lot of Bible verses, but there's one Bible verse that we've been trying to memorize as a church family over the last couple of months, and we'll hit it for a couple of weeks, and then we move away from it, and then we come back to it. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, and the hook word from Acts chapter 17 is the word proclaim, that this God that they known, did not know in Athens is the one that Paul came to proclaim. 2 Corinthians 4 5 is going to be up on the screen. I want to remind you of what it says. What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. We're not preaching ourselves, we're preaching Jesus. And I know this is awkward every time, but it's so important that we speak Scripture together that I want us to read that verse. Some of you, it'll be a reminder as you're practicing, memorizing this verse. For others, it might be the first time that you've seen this verse. But what we're going to do is speak this verse out loud, reminding ourselves what it is we speak about, what it is we want to be all about. So on the count of three, we're going to read this verse together. One, two, three. So based on that, oh yeah, 2 Corinthians 4, 5. 
Sorry about that. <laughs> left, out the, uh, left out the reference. But good job picking that up. Um, what this verse is aiming at and what Acts chapter 17, or Acts 17, 23 is aiming at is something very important. What Paul is telling them is that the notion of God is not a vague idea. Paul's not saying just have faith, that's the main thing. He's saying there's a God that you don't know but you're trying to seek after and I'm going to proclaim particularly to you who that God is. You say, what does that matter? I don't, I'm not tracking with you. Here's why it matters. Because in our culture, people are quick to reference a higher power. If you've been to AA or NA, there's this idea of a divine higher power. If you've grown up around good old boy Christianity or good old boy religion, we talk about the big man upstairs. Many of the times when we reference God, it's in this very vague general concept. Scripture, surprisingly enough, doesn't spend a lot of time providing arguments for the existence of God. That's not a bad thing. That, that oftentimes helps people move from the point of being an atheist or an agnostic, and then they begin to think about what sometimes we call theism, just the idea that a God does exist out there. But none of those arguments are going to always get you directly to the God of the Bible. And so what Scripture does is it spends a lot less time arguing for God's existence and a lot more time telling us who the God is that it presupposes exists. Because it tells us who God is, what he does, and why it matters. And so when Paul comes into Athens, he doesn't spend time necessarily arguing for the existence of God because he knows they're already religious. They already have these general religious ideas. He wants, though, to preach to them who this God is. He wants to speak who God is, and he begins to do that based on creator. And even when we talk about God as creator, we're not talking about a general concept. We're talking about God as Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all involved in the act of creation. My encouragement to you is when you talk with people about religious ideas, when you talk with people about the idea of creation, about the idea of a God who creates, be very careful about using vague general language because you can get a lot of head nods when you talk about God. You can get a lot of head nods when you talk about a divine power. When you mention Jesus, that's when the conversation gets awkward because what you've done is you've taken a vague general idea, in some sense an unknown God, this vague general concept, and you've particular. All right, I practiced this word this week. You've particularized it. You've, you've made it specific. It's not a vague concept. It's I want to tell you who this God is. And that's part of what Paul's doing here. Moving on in verse 24, we know more about who this God is that Paul proclaims to them. Verse 24, he is the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth. Sometimes, uh, and this is a concept we won't press too far this morning, but sometimes when we talk about creation, we'll, we'll talk about God creating ex nihilo. We'll talk about him creating out of nothing is the phrase, that he is not part of creation, but he has created all things that exist. The reason this matters is that God of the Bible is not a God of one particular location, or he's not the God of one particular group of people, He's the God of all people, in all places, at all times. He didn't create one section and say, I'm going to be the God over this. In the ancient world, it was common that you would have a God of a particular area, 
or a God of a particular element of creation, but the God that the Bible speaks of is the God of heaven and earth. I spent some time after college in Southeast Asia in the country of Cambodia, and as we would talk with some of the the Buddhist priests in this area, one of the things that stood between them and wanting to have anything to do with Christianity was the fact that they saw Jesus as the white Western God. Their words, not mine, their words. They saw Jesus as the white Western God, and particularly as the American God. That's good that your culture has a God named Jesus. We have other beliefs in our culture. And and this is really the idea we talked about last week with pluralism, or sometimes people will throw out the word postmodernism, which a lot of times what that word means, if you hear that word in school or in college, it means that there's a rejection of any idea that there's one story that makes sense of all places, all people, all things. There's a complete rejection of one overwhelming story. But what Paul is saying when he comes to Athens and what we're saying is that the God that we worship is not the God of one particular location or one particular people. He's the maker of heaven and earth. He is God over everyone in all locations. It goes on in verse 25, or at the end of verse 24, and he says, He does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. One of the groups that Paul was dealing with when he came to Athens, it says earlier, were the Stoic philosophers. Uh, One concept, and Stoicism is a pretty flexible idea that you kind of have to work yourself into, but, but Stoicism, one of the elements of it is the idea of the divine power being infused in creation, and so your goal as a person is to live in harmony with these divine principles that are in creation. It's not a perfect parallel. It's not a perfect parallel, but it's similar to what you find in 21st century world where your goal as a person is to get in touch with the energy in the universe or that you put out good energy or bad energy and and the goal is that that tree over there is somehow divine or that rock over there somehow that God has infused himself in creation. When we talk about creation in scripture, The phrase that we want to use, and this is kind of a little side phrase you can write down if you'd like to, but it's the phrase ad extra, A-D, so not A-D-D, but A-D, to pick up on a kind of a Latin idea, and then the word extra. What it means is that God creates outside of himself. It's not as if when God creates, he infuses himself into all things so that the tree is divine and the rock is divine, and it's not that is that he created those things as a reflection of his power and beauty and strength. And so all things are created to worship God, but not all things are God. And that's an important distinction because we live in a world in which people will talk about the energy in the universe and the divine power in the universe, and our goal is to get in touch with the divine power. That's not our goal. Our goal is to worship the one who created all things. We're called to worship, not to get in touch with some sort of vague, vague power. And I don't want to say that, even as I say that, it comes out much more condescending than I meant. But, but this idea that what we're really aiming at is the one who's created all things, not this idea that he's somehow infused himself and we're getting in touch with that. Verse 26, after he gives to all mankind life and breath and everything, it says in verse 26, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth 
having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So when Paul was speaking about the Stoic philosophers, their idea was that God had somehow infused himself, the gods infused themselves into the created world. The other group of philosophers that he spoke with were the Epicureans. The Epicureans were a group that they saw the gods as more distant. This is the idea that maybe there are gods, maybe there aren't gods. If there are gods, they're not interested in us. us. Our, our focus is on the material world. So Paul is countering that idea by showing them that the God who created remains involved in his creation. And this is such an important point because there's an idea out there called deism, D-E-I-S-M. We started out with astrophotography, so it seemed like a good day to introduce new words. Uh, But never, ever let me introduce a new word to you without explaining what it means. Deism is the idea that there's a God out there who maybe got things started uh, and then he just sort of leaves creation to continue operating by itself. A little more complex than that, but the idea is that the gods are separate from us, that they're not involved. What Paul is saying here in verse 26 is the God that I proclaim to you is not only a God who created you, but a God who remains involved in your life. And be careful that you don't fall into this deism trap in your everyday life. Because if we're not careful, God is a concept that stays far, far away from us. That's good that those people have faith. That's good that those people think about God. I've got other things to worry about today. But the God who created you is the same God who sustains you every day of your life. And the same God who wants to guide you on the path and the purpose that he's laid out for you. And so that's what Paul is doing here in verse 26. Then you get to verse 27. What's the purpose of all of this? What's the purpose of knowing this God? Verse 27, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. So what Paul is telling them, the reason you have this inclination to know God, the reason that God has made himself known to you is so that you would seek after him and find him. But this verse is a little trickier than it looks on on first element here because Paul's not saying that just because you seek after God that you'll automatically find him. In fact, the language is really weak here. It's the idea that we're created to seek and to know God, but left on our own, we'll end up seeking after created things and not the creator. Here's how this works. So you send one of your small children to get something in the house. You say, hey, can you go grab some paper towels? Small child comes back to you a few minutes later. What did you send me to get? Paper towels. Small child goes back in search of paper towels. Comes back with paper cups. I told you to find paper towels, not paper cups. Like what, just because you seek after something doesn't mean you're not going to get distracted and go after something else. We don't always seek after the right things. Our high school baseball coach, uh, he was a guy who liked to pull pranks and jokes sometimes on us. One of his go-to jokes was that he would sometimes try to send freshmen or underclassmen to go find the key to the coach's box. Well, that would be okay, except the coach's box is that little chalk area next to the third base line where the coach stands to operate. There's no key to the coach's box, 
But the obedient freshman doesn't know that. So the obedient freshman goes to the clubhouse trying to find the key to the coach's box, comes back later, everyone's laughing at him. He's seeking out something that he was never meant to seek out in the first place. Part of what Paul is doing here in this verse is he's saying just because you have an inclination, a God-given inclination to seek after God, doesn't necessarily mean that left to your own you're going to find him. Because then he comes back in verse 28 and he says, at the end of verse 27, he says, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Now if you're reading out of a paper copy, of the Bible or even some electronic versions, the, the font or the wording is gonna look a little bit different in verse 28 because what it looks like Paul is doing here is instead of quoting scripture, Old Testament scripture to them at this point, he quotes from some of their own philosophers, from some of their own poets. And this is an interesting point because remember he's speaking to a Gentile audience. They don't know the Old Testament, well, but they would have considered the Hebrew Bible. They don't know those scriptures, and frankly, they don't care about those scriptures. And so instead of quoting some verses that they don't know or care about, Paul reaches into their own documents, their own ideas, and pulls out a couple of phrases that tie in with this idea of God as creator and that God is knowable. And then in verse 29, he says, being then God's offspring, so if you believe that there's a God out there, who made it possible for us to exist, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. Then look at the last phrase of verse 29. If you like to underline phrases, this is the interesting one to underline. An image formed by the art and imagination of man. There are two possibilities. Either humans form God and his image, or God forms us in his image. One of the two options. Either, either we form God, which we would call an idol, according to our imagination, according to our ideas, or God has formed us. And Paul says, I walked into your city and there's all these idols around and they've been shaped by human hands. But what I want to tell you is that the God of heaven and earth is the one who shaped you. And not only that, but he created you in his image so that you would know him and worship him. What if you don't? Verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. That verse leads us into what we're going to begin to look at next week as we kind of follow up with the next part of the speech. But what Paul is saying here at the end is not, hey, live your life however you want. If you know God, that's okay. If you don't know God, that's not okay. He says, no, I have proclaimed to you who this God is. And on, based on who God is and what he's done and why it matters, I'm calling you to repent and to turn back to him, to worship him as creator. And so not to overcomplicate things this morning, but part of the call of scripture this morning in our lives is to say, who are we worshiping? What are we worshiping? What drives our lives? There are three points that I put on your notes that we're gonna wrap up with this morning. How does this doctrine of creation impact the way that we live? Three things. Number one, God's design in creation focuses us up in worship. Don't laugh at me, but you know where this is going, up in, out. Uh, creation focuses us up in worship. When we know who God is as the creator of heavens and earth, 
it focuses everything that we do on him. He is the one who gives life. He is the one who is worthy of our lives. All glory is to be given to him because when we do that, when we realize that he is the creator, we begin to trust him. We begin to say, you know what? I'm not gonna live my life seeking after the created things. I'm going to give my life to you. What this guides us toward are often questions of purpose in life. If you've watched the Olympics uh, much the last couple of weeks, one of the storylines that's gone through the Olympics is Michael Phelps and some of this personal rehabilitation that he's been through. And if you follow that story a little bit further, you find that Ray Lewis, who was a former NFL star, gave Michael Phelps a copy of the book Purpose Driven Life by Rick Warren. Now whatever you think particularly about that book, whether good or bad, it's fascinating that you have these star athletes. That book, Purpose Driven Life, uh, has been referenced by some prominent businessman, CEO, none other than Kim Kardashian has referenced the book, Purpose Driven Life. That probably kills any validity that the book would have, but, but Kim Kardashian has referenced I, I think if you remember back to the uh, series, The Office, not recommending the series, just using the illustration, uh, the accountant lady on, uh, on the office said that if she was stranded on, uh, on a desert island, she would take the Bible and purpose-driven life uh, with her. This idea, though, that people are seeking after purpose in life. When you engage and talk with people about God being the creator, it's not just the idea that God exists, but that reason that God exists is because then we know the purpose for life. Then we know the meaning for life. Not a lot of people are standing around wondering whether or not God created everything. A lot of people are standing around wondering why they exist. What's the purpose? What's this all about? And these concepts, according to scripture, are tied together. We're able to say this is the God who exists. This is why you were made. This is what he wants you to live for. The second reason creation matters is because God's design shapes us inwardly through discipleship. Here's what I mean by that. This is a really important concept, but, but here's what I mean by that. When God creates, he creates in such a way that he reveals himself. And as he reveals himself, we know then what his design is for our lives. So the more we know about God and his creation and the way he's made himself known to us, the more we know how we're supposed to live. We love because God first loved us. We seek to be patient because God is exceedingly patient. We seek to protect and value life because God protects and value life. We seek a particular way of exhibiting sexual relationships because God has established life in a particular way. We seek to use money in a particular way because God is the one. The more we know about how God has revealed himself, the more we know about how we're created to live. Creation is not an abstract, out there idea. It's part of what shapes our lives. As we know God's creation, we know how he's called us to live. And then finally, and, and probably most importantly, God's design in creation is what sends us out on mission. Remember that God as creator did not stop with Genesis 1-1. God as creator is not just a creator who got things started, but he is a thing, he's a creator who is shaping his people and his place for his glory. It's a plan that is going somewhere. There's a really fascinating and very difficult discussion that happens a lot in, in modern day America about whether Christians, Jews, and Muslims worship the same God. 
Now, based on the time right now, we have no time to delve deeply into that question, but it's, a, it's an important one and one that we'll, t- we'll take a look at. But here's the most important concept there. The thing that would distinguish those three faiths is not necessarily the idea of God as creator. What would distinguish those three, three faiths is the idea of a creator who is on mission to redeem his people in a very particular way through Jesus Christ, specifically through his death and resurrection. And so a God who is on mission, a God who creates and then remains on mission so that his creation will exist for his glory is the same type of God that sends out his people on mission. So when we recognize him as creator, watch watch how this works, and we're gonna end with this. When we recognize God as creator, and we recognize how his creation shapes our lives, then what that does is it rescues us from a meaningless, purposeless life, and it points us on this mission that matches up with God's mission for the world. So God as creator means that we trust him, we give ourselves fully to him, and then we live every day for his mission and his glory.